Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of Say It Ain't Contagious, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of baseball, social justice, and politics. I'm Craig Calcaterra, and I am joined today, as always, by Tova Wang, Lincoln Mitchell, Frank Garrity, and Adrian Burgos Jr., the other member of our sextet. Stephen Goldman cannot be with us because while he does not work for the man every night and day, he sometimes does have to work. This week, we have a very special guest, and to give a proper introduction to that guest, I'm going to throw it to Frank. Thank you, Craig. In our last episode, we discussed the state of racism in our country one year after the murder of George Floyd. We focused on the workings of anti-Black racism in the world of baseball and in the larger society, of course. But racism operates differently vis-a-vis -vis other racially marginalized people in this country. And if we've seen the resurgent movement for Black lives raising the question of systemic anti-Black racism once again during the past year, We've also witnessed a resurgence of other kinds of racism, particularly those directed against Asian Americans, propelled by the Trump administration's Chinese virus rhetoric, right? And we've talked about Black players in Major League Baseball, Latino players in Major League Baseball, but we haven't spoken much about Asian players, a significant demographic, of course, not just in Major League Baseball, but of course, in the history and in the global baseball picture. And so this is an opportunity for us to talk about, you know, Asian, Asian American experiences in the baseball world, but in the bigger society. And in order to really have a productive conversation about anti-Asian racism in this bigger historical context, we felt we needed to reach out to a historian. We like historians on this podcast. I'm one of them, as well as others, but not just any historian, but someone who's a leading expert on Asian Americans in the United States and on U.S. immigration history. And that person is our special guest today, Professor May Knight. Let me give a quick introduction to Professor Nye. Uh, I, it will not be exhaustive. You can find her online easily, where you can uh, read all about her extraordinary achievements in her career. Professor Nye is an award-winning legal and political historian who's written extensively about questions of immigration, citizenship, and nationalism. She is the author of the award-winning book, Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern America, which was published in 2004. She also published The Lucky Ones, One Family and the Extraordinary Invention of Chinese America, published in 2010. Professor Nye has written on immigration history and policy for a variety of publications, including The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, The Nation, The Boston Review, among many, many others. Before she became a historian, she was a labor union organizer and educator in New York City. And she has a new book coming out later this year entitled The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics. And I'm very fortunate enough to have May as my colleague here at the Department of History at Columbia University, where she is the Long Family Professor of Asian American Studies and Professor of History. May, welcome to CNA Contagious. We're really happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. A couple of weeks ago, you published an excellent essay in The Atlantic, right, which situated the murders of Asian and Asian Americans in Atlanta within the longer history of racism against Asian peoples in the United States, particularly Chinese and Chinese Americans, going back to the 19th century. So I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit more about the, the arguments that you made in the essay, and perhaps more specifically, how this moment of anti-Asian racism compares with earlier moments of hate and violence directed against Asian and Asian Americans in the United States. Well, thanks, guys and gals, for having me. As will probably become apparent as we proceed, I'm not a big sports expert, although I do like to watch tennis and baseball. Maybe we'll get to some of that later. We will. Yeah, because there's a lot going on in tennis right now. No right? doubt. So, you know, when this, these murders happened in Atlanta, there was a lot of attention. And I, I found it really sad that eight people had to die for people to even raise the question. And it was a bad question. Oh, is there racism against Asians? Maybe it was a sex thing. Maybe it was just random. So there was a lot of resistance uh, or questioning. And so we had a conversation 
I think it's almost over. I think people are tired of talking about it already. You know, it's been about a month and that's a long time in American media to focus on one question. So maybe, maybe this issue is already over. I don't know. But in any case, there were a lot of people, you know, on Twitter and social media and on mainstream outlets talking about a very long history of discrimination, race riots, lynchings, driving outs, exclusion laws, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that is, you know, important. These are histories that many people don't know. But I started to feel that there was this kind of listing of events, listing of harms, and occasionally a listing of resistances. But it just seemed very ahistorical, even though it was a list of historical events, right? It really didn't have much depth, in my view. But The Atlantic asked me if I wanted to write something, and I took them up on it because I wanted to put things in a broader historical context. I wanted to make two points. First, that as Stuart Hall, you know, the cultural theorist said, there's no such thing as racism in general. Racism is always specific, historical, and produced and has to be reproduced, right? And so it's wrong to, for us to think about racism as a singular thing, but we need to think about racisms, plural. So that's the first thing. And so not all racisms are the same. But I also wanted to say that in this country, it's a very complicated racial history. And the various racisms in our history and in our society are entwined in in many ways. And they're inextricably connected. I wanted to connect the dots. So one of the big points I made in this piece was that at the time of the great anti-Chinese agitation, which started on the West Coast, and culminated in the passage of the Chinese exclusion laws uh, in Congress in 1882, uh, I said, let's think about this in the context of two big moments in American history. First, westward expansion, and two, uh, reconstruction. And if we look at those two national frames, a very interesting picture emerges. So first, well, why is it that people in the United States wanted to exclude Chinese? Why? I mean, a lot of people came to this country who looked different, to put it simply, but why were Chinese a target of exclusion? And I think this very much has to do with the expansion of the United States across the continent starting in the 1840s, culminating in the U.S.-Mexico War, right, in the annexation of half of Mexico, through which process there was also a massive genocidal dispossession of Native peoples across the plains all the way to the West. There's this massive conquest of the American West. And when white Americans get to the Pacific coast, you know, they, they kind of look behind them and they see all that they've accomplished right through this violence, uh, warfare, plunder, and theft. And they also look out across the Pacific to what many of them thought was the next frontier, right? New lands in foreign places to conquer. But that also brought a special anxiety because you know, when you want to trade with point X, people from point X are going to come with the goods, right? It's very hard to separate trade of objects or commodities and the movement of people. And so the whole idea of the continental expansion of the United States was driven by basically by white entitlement, right? It's not for Indians. It's not for Mexicans. It's for white people. And so the idea of Chinese coming to the United States and to California was extremely anxiety provoking and violent provoking. And so the Chinese question in the West and the so-called Negro Negro question in the South become um, part and parcel of a big question in the 1870s as to what is this country going to look like, right? If now we have preserved the union, we have a single economy and a single polity. Well, what is that going to really look like? Because it's not all white people. Now you have freed black people and you have upwards of 50,000 Chinese on the West Coast. So in that sense, this question of what is America going to be? Is it going to be a democracy where everybody has equal rights? That was the promise of the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments. Or is it going to be a nation where white supremacy rules? That's the kind of picture I tried to explain to show how, well, the particular form of racism against Chinese, it had its own idiom. It traded on specific stereotypes, some of which were very much related to slavery. I mean, Chinese were compared to slaves. But it had its distinctive form. 
but it was part of a larger move of an agenda of white supremacy in which the South and the West determined what democracy was going to look like or not look like in the United States. Isn't that our question now? I mean, granted, uh, you know, so here we are in 2021, over a century later, and, you know, a different context, but, you know, with a resurgent white supremacy, you know, you know, epitomized in Trumpism, but other occurrences as well, to some degree, aren't we dealing with the same question? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the voter suppression laws that are being introduced all over the country, it's all about making sure the vote does not include Black people, Brown people, Asian people. And, you know, notwithstanding the the little bump that Trump got in communities of color, you know, that's in a way a red herring, I think, because all communities of color, including African-Americans, have had a slice of Republicans in their communities. That's not especially new. And Latinos and Asians and even Blacks are not monolithic, you know, in their ethnic backgrounds or their, their class backgrounds. So there are differences. But in general, I think it's kind of undeniable that what the whole GOP move is right now is to restrict the vote. So I work on voting rights in my day job, as people know. And one of the things that kind of has gotten lost, I think, or at least forgotten a little bit, is that Asian turnout, and I fully appreciate it's not monolithic, but was way up this past year. And the population of Asian Americans in this country is surging. And you see a little bit more kind of public speaking out, it occurs to me, it seems to me. And I'm also really interested in the extent to which Black Lives Matter and the anti-racism movement really came to recognize in the last couple of months the intersectionality, to use an overused word, of the challenges. I'm not so sure that more people are speaking out as maybe more people are listening. You know, there have been Afro-Asian solidarities that go way, way back into the 19th century, throughout the 20th century, certainly throughout the civil rights movement. I mean, I'm a product of the Asian American movement of the 70s, and we understood from day one that our fate was tied to the fate of African Americans. Black people weren't free, then we we wouldn't be free either. You know, and in that article we mentioned in The Atlantic, I quote from Frederick Douglass, who was an opponent of Chinese exclusion. He saw migration as a human right. He said, yeah, there's a lot of people in China. It's overcrowded. Let them come. If they want to come, let them, let them all come. He just took that yellow peril thing of there'd be millions and millions of Chinese invading the country. He said, let them come. So what? They'll come and they'll be Americans. We should welcome them. It's an amazing thing that he said because he was not afraid of more yellow people coming to this country. And, and so, so two things can be said here. First, it's not true that, you know, gazillions of people would have come. I mean, migration doesn't work that way. If everybody who was poor came, you know, they, they would have already been here. So migration doesn't quite work in that mass flooding or invasion metaphors that are used. But at the same time, Asians are 60% of the world's population and they are 6% of the U.S. population. So any kind of reckoning that thinks about migration in anything close to democratic or fair terms would have to say that, you know, you want to keep out 60% of the world. So the small percentage of white people can control this country. And Douglas said, if you do that, the white people are going to go to other places in the world and claim them for themselves too. It's not going to stop here. They're going to want the rest of the world for themselves. And he didn't use the word imperialism, but that's exactly what he was talking about. And so, so here's a little thought experiment. What if there were no exclusion laws? What if Chinese and other Asians just came the way Douglas had said they should be able to come? Well, there would be many more millions of Asian Americans today. In 1950, Asians were one half of 1% of the U.S. population, 320,000. It's a minuscule number. That's what decades of exclusion meant, that the Asian American population could not increase through migration and could increase in very limited ways through natural reproduction. Now, Asians are not even 6% of the population of the United States. 6%. And yet people still think there's too many Asians. 6%. Too many. Send them back, right? We don't want any more. They're going to overtake the United States. So this idea that Asians don't belong here, or if you let a few of them in, they're going to take over, that has a very, very deep history. 
Uh, it's very ingrained in the way people even think about population. I'm kind of fascinated by that thought experiment you mentioned, and I'm also by the 6%, right? Because I suspect if you asked white Americans what that number is, they'd say 15% or something. I don't know, but I'm just you know guessing. I was also struck by something I read earlier in the week. Of the people who voted in the last presidential election, 72% were white. And I suspect that's a number that everybody, whether they're on the left or the right or in between, would think was much lower. And because the messaging we're getting from both the left with this narrative of, you know, the demographic reality is going to make the Republican Party unable to win. And and from the right, which is, you know, be afraid, this is not going to be a white country anymore. But what strikes me about your thought experiment, I'm fascinated by it, but I don't know what it would look like. I don't know the answer. Because one thing that strikes me is that, you know, 60% of the world's people and a huge swath of the world's geography, you know, Korea, Japan, uh, China, all the way to, to you know, Pakistan, uh, Western, you know, India, places like that. And I wonder if that had happened, we have a taxonomy for thinking about race in America that is kind of unique to American history. And I wonder if that taxonomy would have held up if Asian Americans, as we define them now, were, you know, 30% of the, of the country's population, not to mention 60%. I think it might have been a good 20%, maybe. But here's the thing, right? It was not just in the United States, but also throughout the British Empire that white people freaked out about Asians moving around the world, going to Australia, going to South Africa, going to North America, to Canada. And from about 1900 to the early 20s, there was a whole raft of white supremacist literature, which I think it's best captured by Lothrop Stoddard's book, The Rising Tide of Color. And this was an alarm that he sent off that basically was that the temperate zones of the world must be preserved for whites. The colored people can stay in the tropics, they can stay in the warmer places, but the temperate zones have to be for the white people. And this is the kind of ideological and eugenicist premises of Asian exclusion that not only takes place in the United States, but takes place in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, etc. And this is the uh, the so-called dominions, the white settler colonies of the British Empire, basically took their playbook from Chinese exclusion in the United States, that was the first place that it happened, and they copied it. And they adapted it, you know, it wasn't exactly the same everywhere, but they were all singing from the same hymnal, right, which is that the temperate zones are for white people. And once you let the Asians into those areas, you're lost, you're gone, they'll overwhelm you. And from a global demographic point of view, there, there's something to be said about that. And so they went to great lengths to make sure that Asian migration would be limited to plantation indentures, right, to tropical regions like the Caribbean or Mauritius, Fiji, but not to the democratic societies run by whites. So there is a huge pushback that takes place from both American and British or Australian and South African writers. The one most known probably in the United States is Madison Grant, who wrote this tract called The Passing of the Great Race, which was how whites were going to be overtaken by people of color because white people had fewer children and therefore were not going to be able to compete with not only people of color, but also Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans, because that was these peoples were not really considered completely white at the time. As you were talking there, May, one of the things that struck me in thinking historically about this is there's this seeming lack of confidence in the power of American culture or American genes, that's so really crazy ideas, to absorb or assimilate Asian people into what is envisioned as the America of the future. And this is, I would say from your scholarship and others, this is where violence enters, both rhetorical violence and actual physical violence about this fear of the unassimilability of Asian people, even though we see Japanese playing baseball way back in the 1870s and giving it their own meaning. And last year, we baseball fans were entertained and kept afloat by KBO, the Korean Baseball Organization. And so, yeah, I just wanted to have your reflections on how and where violence enter into these kinds of conversations. Well, there's violence everywhere, you know, from people being driven out of towns Chinatowns burned to the ground, people lynched, murdered, beaten up by mobs, 
This happens all over the Pacific coast through, I would say, even the 1890s, which was very violent. But I also want to say it's not all violence all the time either. And not every white person in California was a violent racist. You know, Chinese settled in small communities and in cities. They did business with white people. They worked for white people. Some of them hired white people themselves. You know, so I think it's, it's also important that we understand not just resistance um, and perseverance on the part of Chinese Americans, which certainly there was, but also that there were communities where people actually managed to, you know, I mean, it wasn't great. I mean, you know, they're segregated, right? Chinese lived in part one part of town. They tended to have niches in certain businesses or in certain jobs, but they also contributed to those communities, And so they were not just kicked out of every place. And in fact, when I was doing research for my book on the gold rushes, there was this famous meeting in Tuolumne County, a town called Columbia, where the white miners met in their their so-called district, right? Because that's how the gold fields were governed. They were governed in this kind of white democratic way where the miners all made decisions. And they voted that no Chinese could belong in their district. And they had some very racist language in their resolution. And that Columbia resolution is known to anybody who, a few people who know this history, is as being emblematic of the exclusion of Chinese from the gold fields by white miners. But I looked at the bylaws of every town and goldfield district in that county. And Columbia was the only one that had an anti-Chinese clause. They were not forbidden in the other 20 places. And I thought that was really interesting. There's evidence that they worked in those other places too, some more than others. They tended to cluster in certain communities. It would also be a mistake for us to think that every place was as violent and as exclusionary as the worst places. I mean, the worst places were certainly really bad. But I think I thought that was really interesting, right? That there were places where people kind of managed to um, get along. Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <ríe> y unos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <ríe> El, la mejor manera de conocer a alguien, deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar producto individual a precio regular. I have a number of thoughts in my mind, but I, I want to go to the baseball hook here because, you know, when I was reflecting on your piece, you know, I was thinking about Shohei Otani, the Angels star, Japanese, Japanese, not Japanese American baseball player. And of course, we're talking about Asian Americans and, and we're talking about Asians in this case in the game in Major League Baseball, right? So, I mean, we have to be cognizant of those differences. But I thought about this question as it related to earlier discussions we've had in the podcast of the role of baseball and sport being this space of inclusion for marginalized, racially marginalized peoples, right? And on this podcast, we've talked about African-Americans, we've talked about Latinos, Afro-Latino players. We haven't talked about Asian players and even Asians in the world of sport as this space where even if it's just on the level of representation, they're able to sort of carve out a space of recognition. So as the baseball public is celebrating Otani, though not enough, because he's an extremely charismatic figure and an outstanding player, you know, he hasn't made the, the kind of splash that other folks have back. Jeremy Lin, and that's a different case because he's Chinese Americans. So I know that's different from, from 10 years ago now. But I'm thinking about these kind of inclusionary spaces in terms of representation, about how they work in either mischaracterizing our understanding of Asianness in the United States or how they can actually heighten awareness of Asian experiences in the United States. Or is the role of you know, Asian athletes in this configuration just a distraction that, that takes us away from a real understanding of the Asian experience you know, in this country and even in Asia? Can I just tack one thing onto that that, yeah. that is connected that I've been thinking about too, is the extent to which Asian players are put into the same cubbyhole as other successful Asian American communities with the model minority, model men, minority whether yes. we also stereotype Asian players I don't know if people have tracked the kind of language that is used to describe Asian players the way they have with comparing Black players and Latino players. We know that they are talked about in very different terms and whether the Asian players are, are characterized as hardworking and quiet, I guess, or whatever it is, or, or you know, learning English. 
in a way that, um, you know, again, puts them into that, that box. Lincoln, were you going to say something? I was just going to say that also is a contrast to how Latino players are discussed. An Asian player who is discussed as studying English, a Latino player is unable to speak English, even though their English level is probably exactly the same. Well, I think Asian baseball players, especially the Japanese, we're mostly talking about Japanese players. I think they're a novelty in America. And I haven't followed baseball press like you guys do. So I don't know all the things that are said, but I, it's totally believable that, you know, their, their good study habits and are, are remarked upon. I want to come at this from a different angle, which is the role that baseball plays in other countries. Baseball is huge in Japan. It's huge in Taiwan. And that's a history that I don't know that well, but you know, they have their own players and their own teams and their own fans. And so what you see here is kind of a spillover, right, of the kind of growth of the sport in other countries. It's a little bit like cricket in the British Empire. The biggest cricket fans in the British or uh, the, the Anglophone world are like from India and the Caribbean, right? So I think that there's a story here that you might want to pursue. And I'll just tell you a, a very little part of it, which I know from my personal experience, which is that my son was a big baseball fan when he was a kid. He still is. And so he went to Little League summer camp for several summers. And I don't know if you know where Little League summer camp is. It's in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, the hottest place on the East Coast in July. And it's where the Little League World Series takes place. And the kids don't get to play in that stadium. Maybe there's like a couple of games there. But who won the Little League World Series year after year in the 1980s? Taiwan. Taiwan. They always won. And so there is a story about the spread of baseball in East Asia and its embrace by Asian cultures, Asian societies. I was in Tokyo a few years ago. And I dared not go home without a raft of Tokyo Giant baseball caps for all the men in my family. <laughs> so, you know, it's a really big thing in, in Japan and in Taiwan. I'm not sure about Korea. I think it's they play in South Korea. Oh, yeah, no. Absolutely. I, and it was yeah, the so, Japanese. So what you see here in these handful of elite players in Major League Baseball teams, I think is not understandable unless you understand the kind of migration or the embrace of American-style baseball in East Asia. And to some extent, it's not American-style baseball because Korea and Taiwan got baseball from Japan, not from the United States. Yeah, so right. they they play on what you, if you will, Japanese-style baseball. But otherwise, I, I very much agree. I also have actually been to a game in both Japan and Taiwan, Taiwan years ago and Japan a couple of years ago, and highly recommend it. I will say, because it's kind of in the news now, that I went with a, a Taiwanese friend of mine. I was studying over there for a summer, and I met this dude who became friendly. He was a big baseball fan. And as they got up to uh, sing the national anthem, he grabbed my shirt and pulled me down because of his political views. He didn't stand up for the Taiwanese national anthem, which, of course, is a, an issue we've discussed on this podcast as well. But the other thing I would say is that I think that when we discuss Shohei Itani or Ichiro or Hideki Matsui or any of these 21st century or you know, going back to Hideo Nomo, who's kind of the breakthrough, in the mid-1960s, there was a Japanese player who came to the United States and was really good for a couple of years and then went back. And that's a forgotten chapter in the history of the, the baseball in two countries that is, is fascinating for a number of reasons, one of which is shows how high quality Japanese baseball was even in the 1960s, which is something that the storyline here doesn't usually embrace. The storyline here, in fact, often embraces, I, I don't think it intends to, but just today this came up. Randy Bass was a very middling, if not poor, American baseball player. He went over to Japan in the early 80s and he was fantastic. And and American baseball fans tend to key on stuff like that of, oh, you could be sort of a, a high AAA type player and go to Japan and do great. But they completely forget that there are tons of American players that go to Japan and completely wash out. And then there are tons of Japanese players that come here. And there's this sort of like, oh, it's it's not quite on the same level. And maybe across from top to bottom, there's deeper talent here because we're drawing from a lot more countries. But there is this sort of, isn't it cute that they're playing baseball in Japan? Even after all these years, even after we have Hall of Fame level Japanese players come here. And then that characterization that we mentioned before of they're very cerebral players. Well, people are having a hard time talking about Shoya Otani because he is an absolute beast. He is a physical specimen. He is in better shape. He's faster and he's stronger than everyone here. And he's a smart player. And that doesn't fit into the mold that a lot of people want to peg Japanese players into. So it's been really interesting to see that happen. 
That's why he fascinates me. You know, he grunts when he pitches. He's a very charismatic performer. He's not quiet on the field at all. Uh, he has a style that, you know, some old school people would describe as hot dog. You know, and in that sense, he's different than, you know, Ichiro or previous players who have, you know, who've made it into the major leagues for sure. And that's why I find him really fascinating as a performer. Also, to get back to the Asian American, in this case, the Japanese American, you know, in the 30s and 40s, and I believe into the 50s, there were Japanese American teams that played each other throughout California. You know, these were communities who had, many of them had been interred whatever during the war, but they were baseball players. They couldn't play in the PCL. You know, they were not playing in, in the National League or the American League, so they played each other in these leagues. I'm also reminded of the story of uh, Travis Ishikawa, who was not a great player. I believe he may have hit a big home run a few years ago in the playoffs. Somebody might want to look that one up. But when he, when he was with the uh, Giants in 2010, when he was really not playing much in the playoffs, he had to put a sign in his locker that he didn't speak Japanese. He's from Washington State. He's third generation. He spoke English. And the Japanese press and the American press, those who were just there for the playoffs, just kind of assumed that he was a Japanese dude who didn't speak English, which wasn't true at all. So the immigrant story is an interesting part of this history as well in baseball. And there were also Chinese-American sports leagues up and down California, football and baseball. These were second generation Asian American kids. I mean, the Japanese had their own and the Chinese had their own. They didn't play together. <laughs> but in each case, they were American born, often not really from Chinatowns or, or Japan towns, but from smaller rural towns throughout the state where they didn't have a lot of their own people in those communities. So these leagues were really important because they're a way for them to socialize and to play ball you know, they weren't allowed to play with the white kids in their high schools. And so this goes back to this question that Adrian raised, right, about why can't people see Asians becoming Americans? They become Americans, especially the one, you know, when you're born here, you grow up, you watch TV, you learn English, you go to school, you like baseball, you know, you become an American. You are an American. And, you know, so Adrian, when May was talking about what we're seeing here at the major league level, we see these elite players in East Asia playing, you know, from Korea, South Korea or Japan. It, and that really, that's a manifestation of, of the baseball cultures in those regions. I mean, it is analogous to what we see with Latin American, Latino ball players here, right? I mean, a bigger demographic, but there's a very deep parallel history there, don't you think? I would jump in and say there, there is a really fascinating history, particularly as May's noting about the second and third generation Asian American ball player, uh, Kurt Suzuki and Isaiah Kina Falafel. Uh, um, I might have butchered his last name part into that uh, and then thinking about you know he's Hawaiian and he's also part of the diaspora of Asians to Hawaii and the point here is there there's this different kind of attention and attention to the fact that you have players coming from out of Asia like Shohei Otani and back in the day Ichiro Suzuki and then you also have Asian Americans like Kurt Suzuki and a number of other players. And as these numbers grow, I'm also interested, like, what is their relationship to one another? Because we often talk about the relationship between U.S. Latinos and foreign-born Latinos who are playing baseball, the Dominicans and Dominican-Americans. In particular, there's a guy like Dylan Betances who played with the Yankees, has been with the Mets, and who talks about I'm American and I'm Dominican because Dominicans were born wherever the heck we want to be born. We're from wherever we want to be. Uh, the other interesting guy is Sergio Romo, who said, I'm American with Mexican parts. You know, so thinking about you know, that experience, and was it a couple of weeks ago that MLB Network had a focused event where they had Kim and Isaiah and a couple other, um, sorry, Lincoln, the guy from your, your president from the, the Giants, I'm forgetting his name because it used to be with the Dodgers, but they were all on this showcase event talking about what it means to be Asian or Asian American Pacific Islander in baseball. And so finally, baseball is given a little bit of attention to it, but not quite really developing those stories. And Farhan Zaidi had a great moment because last spring when they were trying to figure out how to play the season because of COVID and the Giants were in Arizona and there was a member of an Arizona city council where the Giants trained you know, for spring training who was like a, a COVID denier. And so he could get a twofer of being a COVID denier and a racist. He went on into the city council with a mask on and said, I can't breathe, right? This is at the moment when there are all these demonstrations of Black Lives and George Floyd. And it was outrageous. And the Giants and Farhan Zaidi 
did an interview on the record, and I'm going to use a profanity here where he told the reporter, this is on the record. You know that guy who did this? Fuck that guy. No, seriously, quote me on that. Fuck that guy. And then he explained both the politics. And if you want to do business with us, you can't do this. So, you know, that, that was an interesting voice for Zaidi. The parallels here, right, are you've got this deep history of just looking at baseball, right, of baseball in these communities on the West Coast and elsewhere, whether Asian American or, or Latinx, Latino American, existing. And yet we've got this persistent status of non-white otherness that stays with us to this day that we've seen get resuscitated yet again in recent months and, and, and certainly over the last year. And that's the paradox, right? You've got the deep history of these communities playing baseball, taking on sport, doing the exemplary things that, you would, that would allow them to ascend, supposedly, coexisting with this ongoing persistence of racism that marks them as others, regardless of how assimilatable they seem to be. I'm always curious, and, and Steve isn't on, but I'm always curious from Steve and Craig in particular, what the interactions are like in the clubhouse among all these players and the different cultures that they bring into the clubhouse. And I don't know if you know what that's like, but how do they how do they interact? Clubhouses are very increasingly now than more than they used to be, I think. There are cliques and yeah, they tend to fall around racial lines and cultural lines, ethnic lines. But it's, it's not a bad vibe at all, really. It's just this is kind of what we do. From what I have seen, the Asian players, especially the big stars, there is always a little bit of distance, but it has nothing to do with their relationship with their teammates as much as it is that the media coverage for them is completely different. and It's otherworldly. There is a dedicated press contingent from Japan of probably 25 people from different outlets, magazines, whatever, websites that are always there for Shoya Otani or used to be for Ichiro or, or Matsui or, who, or whoever. Um, so there's always a bit of a distance because this guy's a huge celebrity in like the narrow way that they perceive the world, right? If you're a baseball player, it's, is the press in my face or are they not in my face? And there are just huge, much larger press demands on the Asian superstars here than there are on most of the other players. So there is a bit of a distance there of, oh, I got to go do that thing now. Oh, I got to be in a separate room because there's room for all the media there and everything. And it just, it, it does create a bit of a distance from what I've observed. Well, and there was a time at least where Asian players were automatically afforded a, an interpreter, right? And there was some tension there. Yeah, Latino players or Spanish speakers just were not automatically. It was this expectation, you're going to figure out this language. And players from Japan routinely had interpreters that were you know, on, on staff. And that's changed in the last collective bargaining agreement. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an odd thing because a bunch of Latino players were like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> One of the interesting things, particularly thinking about the politics of language, is the expectation there was that Latinos, Latinx are supposed to assimilate. And there's still this tension about whether Asians, Asian ballplayers can assimilate to the U.S. norms and values or MLB's norms and values. And that actually plays into it by uh, giving them this other space. And I'll use other again in those scare quotes because yes, Asian players are treated differently. They're a different market for MLB and they have their own press core. And as Craig and Steve will well know, and I, I saw it on a couple of occasions when I was able to hold a press pass and get inside. If there's an Asian pitcher that's going to be on the mound, the coverage is so different. Like I can cover a three-game stand and the middle game, it's um, Yoon Jin Ryu pitching. There's 20 new people who are there to talk to him. And the next day, they're gone. You know, they, they got to go somewhere else to cover something else. You know, and, and it's fascinating to see that because there isn't really that kind of coverage, say, of the Dominican press, if there's a Dominican pitcher going to be on the mound. Is that because it's not so much a novelty anymore? I think a lot of it has to just do with the way that Japanese or Korean players are covered at home. They're just superstars in ways that players here aren't, or even Dominican players. I mean, the, the biggest Dominican players are, but it's a celebrity press almost as much as it is a sporting press. I met a reporter from Korea, and this was when, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember which player it was, but uh, there was a Korean player who was in his first year. He was new here. And I was asking him about the pressures and everything. He said, every single day, I am told I have to get a quote from this player that the other 30 people on this beat don't have. That's impossible, but that's what I'm expected to do. And so there's this, this intensity of the coverage that is completely different. It's also the size of the market, right? I mean, there's a huge Spanish-speaking market, but the Dominican market itself is not comparable to the Japanese market. 
And the players, as we see, have an incentive to speak to the media from Japan if you're Japanese or Korea if you're Korean, because they can always go back there. And sometimes it makes more financial and personal sense for them to play here for a few years and go back, which is less frequently the case with Latino ballplayers. Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <ríe> Llenos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <ríe> El, la mejor manera de conocer a alguien, Deal, de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar producto individual a precio regular. Since we're talking about the press and the press and athletes' faces and, and the press uh, of an Asian-descended athlete, uh, this has been in the news lately in another sport. I know, May, you follow tennis, and there are other people here who follow tennis here, namely me, who, of course, uh, read with great interest the recent situation with Naomi Osaka, Roland Garros, and the French Open, raising this question of the press and athletes in all sorts of ways. When I look at Osaka, and this is just totally impressionistic, but I follow tennis pretty closely. It is interesting to see how, you know, because she plays under the Japanese flag, you know, it's just described by the tennis press as Japanese, right? And the Haitian aspect of her background was sort of overlooked. But then as she's gotten more vocal around uh, Black lives in this country, you know, she's unmistakably Black now, right? And, and so her reputation, even though she is extremely popular, and as the press has told us over and over again, she's the highest earning athlete in tennis, certainly women athlete in tennis right now. And yet in seeing this transition or this moment in her fame, You know, it's an interesting moment for her as we think about athletes in the press, but even thinking about Black and Asian athletes vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, celebrities. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, since you do follow tennis. I was very much struck about how her Japanese side has been increasingly effaced. I mean, she's still called Osaka, but everybody thinks she's Black. And it's kind of like Tiger Woods, mm -hmm. who's seen as Black and not Asian. And I think that might be, in a perverse way, a kind of assimilation for them, that they're, they're more American if they're Black than if they're Asian. And they could be marketed to more people if they're Black, because to be Black in sports is not a liability. Whereas to be Asian in big sports in America is still a little risky, right? Or at best, a novelty. And so, you know, Osaka, her first match when she beat Serena Williams, right? And the crowd booed her. That was just heartbreaking. And she was blamed for denying Serena Williams the win. You know, she won fair and square that match. You know, Serena didn't play that well that day, as sometimes she doesn't. So Naomi has always had to carry this uh, comparison to Serena, which is in part of her own making because Serena was her idol when she was a girl growing up and playing tennis. But I think it's a kind of assimilation. Tiger Woods and Naomi, I think that there's kind of, they're kind of assimilated into being Black Americans. And it's a way for them to be more broadly accepted and embraced in America than if their Asian-ness was more prominent. That's my take on it. Which is so interesting, right? Because, you know, Tiger really never claimed Blackness, but I think this is a really interesting observation, right? I mean, to some degree, he's more marketable and legible because there's this space that Black athletes have carved out for themselves in these sports, you know, in including golf. And this, of course, reminds me of Jeremy Lin, in which, you know, the novelty aspect was that, oh, he's a Chinese American who plays basketball, right? And it just generated all sorts of debates about Asian Americans in basketball and people even getting defensive about the fact that he was getting all this celebrity, you know, even though he only essentially had 15 minutes of fame. He was a very good player and he you know, burst on the scene in a big market like the New York market. And that, that explains part of it. He also went to Harvard. And he went to Harvard. You know, he had all sorts <laughs> of things to talk that about. That made him more Asian. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And yet, you know, to see you know, Osaka and in, in, in these figures in this slide is interesting vis-a-vis -vis how we think about, you know, spaces that are carved out by racialized minorities in sports and where are they sort of seen as legible and which populations are not. Yeah. And her pushback right now, her reluctance to speak to the press because it makes her anxious and they always ask questions that makes her doubt herself. And I hadn't even realized until this thing opened up that they are contractually obligated to speak to the press after each game if they win or lose. That's a lot of pressure. And she's only 23, 24 years old. But the pushback is seen as very much a Black thing, right? Asians don't do that. 
Asians don't say, you know, I'm not doing it anymore. You know, whatever the fine, I'll pay it, whatever. And then, of course, last summer where she was a champion of Black Lives Matter, and she was very eloquent about that. So I don't have a problem with any of that. But I think this issue that we're confronted with is more how the public and the media project these flares and how their racial identities are. They're not in control of it. I was listening to some another podcast today. Tiger Woods came up. And his, his mother, his Thai mother, was always on the green when he played. And he'd always point her out and introduce her. And nobody knows that. Nobody knows that, right? He's the black guy. And so I, I think some of these questions of race and athletes, and especially when you get into this, you know, really high elite levels of, of these sports and these industries, I think players have very little control over their identities. So when they try to assert themselves, and when Naomi was saying, I don't want to talk to the press, she wasn't doing it as a black woman or as an Asian woman or as a Japanese, Haitian woman. She was just doing it as for herself. It's very hard for players to do that. And I think that's very sad. It was fascinating. The criticism of Naomi Osaka in terms of people saying, oh, well, you know, it's because clay's not her best surface and all these things. Like, well, doesn't it make sense that if you really want to focus on putting your best game together and you're saying, I need to focus and I don't want to talk to the press, that that actually goes hand in hand. My mental preparation, my mental wellness and focus needs to be on the court, not necessarily talking, I'm sorry, Craig, uh, you know, inane pressers afterwards. And actually, oh, they're Craig, inane. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the questions that are asked are often just repetitive and troublesome. The other point, May, that you brought up and, and Frank also asked, which is fascinating, is how within organized sports, where blackness becomes the space in which the press or members in control of spinning narratives that's where they can they feel most safe in criticizing the athlete if we mark that athlete as black so Naomi Osaka loses her Asianness so that we can really be critical of her and similar with Tiger Woods the more black he becomes the more critical we can be of who he is and what he's doing and even how that works to render invisible people who are physically present in the shot so as you were saying with his mom she's put into the shadows and and not focused on as part of the narrative but as soon as Earl Wood steps anywhere near that space cameras gravitate and go to him and tell that story I mean we did another episode a couple of weeks ago about mental health um, it came up in a big way in baseball recently. And I was going to may maybe mention it, but just how it's, you know, it's not treated well. I mean, I was totally on the side of feeling like Naomi could tell them all to go to hell if that's what she needs for her own mental health. But that's not, that's not the expectation. The strangest thing about it to me was that they kept saying it's a contractual obligation. I mean, I didn't know that. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, I the casual observer or, you know, game watcher, you know, you see them come on after the show and they talk to Chrissy or McEnroe or whatever. But I didn't know that they had to do that. Well, and that is a lot of pressure because it's actually the yeah. same goddamn questions every time, right? Yeah, and this is a gender thing too, honestly. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So such an analysis of the, how even more inane the questions are to the women athletes. Mm, of course, especially women tennis. And tennis, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, even with with uh, Venus and Serena, who it's oh, all like, the time, you know. <laughs> or Coco Golf. They asked Coco Golf the other day some version of, "Gee, what do you think about the fact that you're compared to the Williams sisters? You know, is it because you're black and an American? You know, like or some something like that." It was even less coherent than that, actually. My was, favorite inane question was, in fact, to Serena about whether she was intimidated by uh, Maria Sharapova's beauty and <laughs> and and Serena's that's like right. that's right like I, I beat her like 23 straight times what the <laughs> heck are you asking me I mean it's insane and I have read and listened to millions of things about the Osaka thing with the point we're making right now nobody else has made that point right because Osaka is just you know black and that's it and this this story has so many layers to it there was a really good discussion today by Howard Bryan and um Bomani Jones, you know, because I mean, there are all sorts of things about, you know, press access to athletes and all that sort of stuff. There's all a set of questions here that this thing raises, but just this whole notion that, oh, hello, 
this person is black and of Asian descent, you know, like that gets erased. I want to read, uh, as we kind of bring it to a close, one of the last lines of the piece in The Atlantic May, you wrote, why does it seem so difficult for many Americans to understand that racism is part of our experience, meaning the Asian, Asian American experience, past and present? Some suggest that we remain invisible to Americans, perhaps because we're perceived as quiet. But in fact, we've been speaking up and speaking out for a long time. It's just that few people have been paying attention, right? And so I thought it was a great way to end that piece, just to mark the ongoing silencing around the uh, Asian, Asian American populations, even though they've been active and present in this country for a very long time, right? And I think that's one of the things we see over and over again, uh, whether we're talking about the sports world or, or obviously outside the sports world. Right. So it was fun talking with you guys. Thank you, Mary. Um, so much I, I'm not a sports person, but mm-hmm. I enjoyed, I enjoy, I know a little bit, you know, so I can kind of follow along. As always, if you enjoy the show, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe to Say It Ain't Contagious, the only podcast that matters. We'd like to thank everyone here today, Frank Garrity, Tova Wang, Lincoln Mitchell, Adrian Burgos, Steve Goldman, our guest, of course, and above all else, May I thank you for being on the show today. With that, we are out of here. We will see you next time, but not if you see us first. That just didn't measure up. This you know what? Yeah, man. That was, <laughs> that was, that was that impressive. Was lame, Greg. No, you got to hear Steve. Yeah, you don't have You got to hear Steve do it. Man, sorry. I love you in all sorts of ways. <laughs>